0: What's up? This is Ralph Trezvan, and you're listening to Reviews and Done
1: with my dude Derek Dunn. Keep it locked, man.
0: What's up, world? Once again, it's your boy Derek Dunn, back with another interview for Reviews and Done. I'm gonna give you guys a little backstory though before I introduce my guest today. So, as many of you, as many of you know, I'm an Air Force veteran. And I don't make any qualms about serving in the Air Force and how music helped me get through my first and only deployment, thankfully, back in 06 to the desert. So it was 06, and I'm in the desert. I'm missing home, and I'm steadily, you know, picking up music. And I go and pick up Diddy's press play album. And the second song called We Gonna Make It featured my guests singing on the hook. And I want to thank my guest for singing that song. It has helped me keep my mind right and helped me keep a clear vision on what I was fighting for. And <laughs> you know, no matter what, I was going to be all right. So, welcome to the line, hookman, producer, writer, businessman, Mr. Jack Knight. How are you doing today, sir?
1: Hey, man. All is well. Um, thanks for that beautiful intro. You know, and um, it feels good to hear stories like that. Um, you know when you're sitting down writing your songs and you don't know where someone's going to be listening at, and I, that, that that was an amazing story. And, and and I hear that those stories, you know, every so often, man, and it makes me, it keeps me going.
0: Oh yeah, that press play album. Um, yeah, did he did he, did he really uh, helped out with that? Uh, with that, join. I mean, you know, thinking about that album, it's so much. Um, it just amps you up. Good workout album. Good, you know, positive. But, you know, that hook you sang, we going to make it, even though it's like, you know, it's just you can take it where you want to. Me hearing that song, like I said, it helped me focus all the time and really, you know, see like, you know, no matter what, I'm going to be all right. You know, at the end of the day, God has me and I'm here for a reason and I'm going to be okay. Like, you know, I'm going to make it through my deployment. And sure enough, 14 years later, here I am still standing.
1: That's right. That was the anthem. That was the anthem. For, you know, the anthem for your journey, man. I was glad to be a part of that, and um, that was what the song was about. You know, me and Diddy collaborated many times, but we've. Uh, that was really one of the first songs that really he. You know, I had my, me and him, I featured on it with him. It was nobody else singing, it was just me and him, and, I, and um, that was kind of a testament to our, our partnership up until that point. You know, just saying, "Hey, Jack, this is, this is one of the records we're going to do together. And he put it, and it was one of the first, I think, the first or second songs on the album. So it set the album off nice.
0: And we're getting get all in your relationship with Diddy, getting to all your, getting the solo album, getting to the songwriting and all that. So I'm looking forward to it, bro. Let's go ahead and start this bad boy out. Sounds good. So you grew up in Brooklyn, and growing up in Brooklyn, how important was the
1: early hip-hop movement to your childhood? I think tremendously. Early early hip-hop movement, we had KRS-One. You had Kim, You had uh, Public Enemy. You had um, some of the remnants of uh, uh, Furious Five and Curtis Blow. So I think all of those different uh, artists and founders influenced, you know, everybody's sound and influenced my sound because it, it, it was a variety of music. You had Jungle Brothers doing House. You had... You know what I'm saying, you had KRS-One doing hip-hop slash reggae. So heavy influence, um, early hip-hop, heavily influence on music in general and, and on my music growing up in Brooklyn. The Brooklyn was a melting pot of different uh, cultures, Haitian, Jamaican, Trinidadian, Puerto Rican, Dominican, African-American, you know what I'm saying, all in one one borough. So the music reflected that.
0: Who were your top three musical influences from a production standpoint growing up?
1: Wow. I think for me, it was, I think it was, um, uh, the Motown, all the Motown producers from a production standpoint was um, great to me. Um, Prince's production, all his albums, Purple Rain, one um, of, you know, all those um, uh, Diamonds and Pearls. Uh, I think, you know, Prince's production was um, amazing to me. And also, uh, you have people like Holland Dozier and Holland. Um, you know, you had, you know, all the, all that, that whole sound. So those, you know, that sound with real bass, real guitar, real hi-hats, real drums, um, the whole Philly sound movement. So I think those sounds was, and also, you know, you had people like Frankie Beverly and Maze, you know what I'm saying? yeah people like that. So I think a lot of the real musicians and real instrumentations, uh, you know, those were my top three.
0: When you were 17, you moved to Chesapeake, Virginia. How was your experience growing up down there, going from a boy into a man, as, as opposed to being think, an NY?
1: I think it was a great. It was great for me for two reasons. It was more of a suburb vibe. Um, I just got married. I just had a new baby, had, had a had kids young, and it was a perfect environment for me. And also, outside of that, there was a person named Teddy Riley. We had a studio down there, and everybody in the neighborhood in the Virginia, Virginia Beach area, was working with Teddy. And my friend uh, knew some people in his camp mutually, and I eventually wind up getting myself over there and working with Teddy on a few Blackstreet albums. And to this day, me and Teddy have a, a production and partnership together um, called, um, called Night and Riley. Um, so that's, that's something new that me and him just formed in the last few weeks. So, you know, he was, he was my mentor, and now we're partners. So that, that experience in Virginia was, was I mean, the fruits that came from that was incredible. So in
0: the VA area, you were known for your hip-hop skills and your lyricism, and you actually signed a solo deal with Def Jam back in 95, but never actually released a project with Def Jam. Do you mind telling us
1: what happened with that? Well, I think I just, uh, you know, most artists, you know, I don't know why, but you sign your, you sign a record deal, and sometimes you you know, you think you're gonna put a project together, but then there's different politics involved. You know, um, at the time it was uh, Def Jam was heavily heavily signing a lot of West Coast acts. So you know, I came in there, I was rapping, and I was singing, but it was it was all new, and a lot of a lot of a lot of the uh, the, the uh, West Coast acts, i.e. Montel Jordan, Warren G. Um, uh, a bunch of them at that time was signed to Def Jam, so I kind of got phased out. And, you know, that was that. But I kept coming back and uh, took a break, and I, then I got signed by Universal uh, as an artist. But once again, Universal gave me an artist deal because they wanted me to write and produce <laughs> for all their artists on their label. And that's that's kind of what they do. They kind of give you what, what you want so you do what they want. And essentially, you know, I was young, and I just was happy to have a deal again and I wound up writing and producing for their artists, and then my album never got the push so it's it's been it's been that on one end, but on the other end, my writing and producing um has really set a foundation for myself, my family, and um just been very successful on that side of it um you know being you know being behind the scenes, and then now moving into being an executive of my own record label.
0: Yeah, we're going to get into the uh, solo album a little bit later in the interview. I actually own it, so, you know, <laughs> we're going to
1: get into all of that. Okay.
0: <laughs> so how did you link up with Sean Conn with Publishing Company, The Writing Factory?
1: Well, I was living in Virginia. I already had, um, I had, I think I had, I was about to do a deal with Universal as an artist. I had been working with Blackstreet on a few projects and Guy and all the groups that he had and Spice Girls, whatever he was working on, I was working on. But I hadn't signed anything with Teddy. I just was doing records for him, just like Pharrell and all the other kids in Virginia Beach. And, um, you know, he was co-producing with us. But uh, uh, I was working with Chad from the Neptunes before – I think it was right right before they they called themselves the Neptunes, I was working with Chad. And Chad um, did a track for me that I got to a lawyer, and that lawyer – um, was real close with Bad Boy and played it for Diddy. And Diddy said, hey, you know, D- Diddy flew me up from Virginia. And um, we had a meeting. He said, hey, man, I love your writing, and I have a lot of artists on this label, and I would love for you to come on and be the first writer, you know, you know, to write for all these acts I have. And um, that was the beginning. As an
0: album credit reader, I think the first time I saw your name was on Chico DeBarge's song, Virgin, from his longtime No See album, how was the experience working with Mr. DeBarge?
1: At first, it was kind of shaky because, one, that was one of my best songs on my demo that I was trying to get a new deal for or, 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 or have them put out. In fact, the album I put out on Universal Gypsy Blues was supposed to have that song on there. But, mm-hmm. you know, in my mind, I'm always a writer first. And um Keaton Massingberg, he uh, – he loved that record. And I didn't know, you know, I gave it to him. He said, you know, he, that was the first song, I, that's the first song I ever sold for $5,000. It took me about $1,000 to make going back and forth to the studio. Cause you know, back in the days, once your studio time is cut off, that's it. You got to wait till the next week or you get your check or whatever. So I put a lot into making the song. And then when I gave it to Chico, what I didn't understand was that his, the sound of his whole album had to be consistent with the other songs. My, you know, my song, he loved my song, but the production wasn't, wasn't consistent with his album, so he had to reproduce a lot of the parts, and me and him kind of almost got into a little fight physically because when I went to the studio to check up on my song, it wasn't sounding the same. And I, just, I didn't understand the politics of why couldn't it stay with the same production, which I felt was a little bit stronger and more crossover, whereas the production he was doing was more Neil Soul style and Angelo style. But um, we almost got into it. Um, later on, you know, we we uh we made up, and in fact, Chico DeBarge, you know, he became a good friend of mine. And he, you know, he wound up taking me around to a few publishers and stuff like that, to try to see if he can help me get a deal uh, on a publishing side. This is this is pre Diddy, now. So yeah, so basically, you know, that was a crazy experience, and um, to this day, you know, I produced that record. But um, shout out to Keedar Massingburg, but also. You know, I definitely um I I never seen none of my royalties my points on that shit. So I don't have a plaque. It went gold, and I haven't seen no royalties on it. So so Keita'll holler all at me.
0: <laughs> Industry man. What was the behind sampling, laid backs, white horse, for the Monifa song, touch it?
1: You said what made me use that? Yes. Um, I was working. With a with a with a young brother, in Norfolk named uh, Ray Luger. and me and he was a he was a local producer, and he had a little small studio storefront set up. Him and some other guys and we was in there just working on some music together, you know, creating together, and you know we went to go to Seven Eleven take a little break, and I walked past this little rinky dink bar, and they was playing this 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 song, and I was, do 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 you wanna ride? White Pony, and I walked past, and I said, "Ray, what's that song playing? I need that." He said, "Oh, that's laid back. I got a compilation CD with laid back song on there right now." From that day, I looped that. I looped that song up, and um, I just knew, you know, I just knew it was a hit, you know. And then at the same time, I, I got hired to work on Monifa's album, and uh, I just knew it was a hit. But not everybody at Universal knew it was a hit. Like I knew it was a hit. Another lady named Jolene Sherry knew it was a hit. And they put that song on a compilation album because Universal was a new label. And they didn't have nothing from Monifa fully mixing yet. They only had that ready. So they put that on there just as a throwaway to put it on there to give DJs. But the DJs loved it so much they started playing it and kind of forced Universal's hand to put it out. But the people that was in charge of her project initially wasn't, wasn't you know, they wasn't as urgent to put it out. But, so it kind of, it you know, it had legs of its own, and, <laughs> a mind of its own, and basically got itself out. Let's
0: go back to 1999 when you released your debut, Gypsy Blues. you of the label dropped the ball from a promotion standpoint.
1: Yes, 100%. Um, what they told me there was a new label, and they they got into they got into some um squabbles with b e t which was supposed to play my video and they got they got into a few things with them and you know it it affected the record in terms of not being not having a video you know play you know consistently so forth and so on. that's what they told me um me personally, I would say that my my, my album was kind of like Frank ocean's album now but but back then. So people loved it. They loved it that it was eclectic. They loved it reminded them of Prince, it reminded them of Curtis Mayfield, all the great writers. But there wasn't a really a straightforward radio song to break to to the black market, to the urban market. And um you know, I'm I'm still very proud of that album because that set off everything. It created a huge buzz for me. But um, I think, you know, the ball, you know, it was a pretty much new marketing and new promotions company, and they, they pretty much didn't really know what to do with me, to be honest.
0: One of the songs from Gypsy Blues was a cover of the Times, Gigolo's Get Lonely Too. Was it hard to secure the rights from Prince?
1: Well, actually, um, I'm not sure. Sh- I know I – know, um, What's the lead singer of Time? Um, Morris Day. Yeah, Morris Day. Morris Day. That was a Morris Day record. I'm not sure if Prince produced that or not. Or, or, or Prince produced it under his moniker, Jamie Starr, whatever. I know he used a different production name, but um, it was pretty much securing. It was pretty easy securing the rights because it was a cover. But that song was a suggestion to me to do by um, Dino DeValle, who was the same A&R that signed Cash Money to their landmark deal. So cash me and cash money had the same had the same A and R. And if you look back at my video that came out, Best Friend, Cash Money was in my video, TLC was in my video, but you know a lot of people was in my video. So essentially, you know, um he suggested that I do that record and it was a you know it was a vocally challenging for me. So I studied it and studied it and um yeah, we got busy.
0: So just a side really quick, I'm just curious, how did that whole thing work with um Doing a cover song—is is a cover easier to get than a sample?
1: I would say yeah, a cover is easier to get because you're using the same record, you're not sampling it. Um, they, you know, and I think they, you know, they they make revenue as well on the, on the publishing side as well. Um, so a cover is definitely easy, more easy to clear.
0: So after the solo album, you're still writing hits if you don't mind, I'm going to take a trip down memory lane with some of those songs and your memories of recording them and working with the artists. Up first is Faith Evans' Can't Believe featuring Carl Thomas and Shine.
1: Yes. Um, wow. That was um, produced by Mario Winans, written, in, written by me and Mario Winans. Amazing record. Definitely true life, real life experience. You know, I was married for a lot of years, and I was, you know, me and my wife was in the process of separating, and um, that was what that song was about.
0: Total sitting
1: home. Uh, Once again, my wife was my muse. I was, I was at the time, I was heating up as a writer and producer, spending a lot of time in New York. My daughter, my daughter, and her were in Virginia a lot by themselves alone while I was on tour with Diddy and No Way Out tour on Monifa's tour and doing stuff like that and um I just wanted to write a song to show her that I understood how she was feeling and that was a total song.
0: The B I G Hustler Story.
1: Hustler story, wow. Um I wanted to do something that was gritty, grimy and for the streets. So it gave you that street feel, but it also gave you a, an, an esoteric, eclectic feel of someone actually not, not actually physically being here. And um, during that whole album, was a really a, a spiritual experience more than a creative experience. Writing for someone that had been killed or passed away, and it you know, and I had to write all the hooks to that most, a majority of the hooks for that Biggie duets album. So. Yeah, def- definitely. I want to have some elements of the street, four, five, six as we shooting, you know what I'm saying? Uh, but I want to add a, a, a spiritual layer in, in, to the song. Black Street,
0: Black and White.
1: Wow, Black and White, definitely a, a Prince-influenced song. Um, something I felt Teddy and him would be, you know, it would be different from what Black Street is, you know, Black Street is known for Pretty much, you know, straight romantic R and B hip hop stuff, and I I wanted to make something for them that was more, you know, more throwback '80s Prince vibe mixed with today's R and B, um, and pretty much that was the result, you know, the result of that song. And Teddy and Chauncey, they loved it, and I I was you know, I was a little surprised that they that they 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 actually was going to cut it, and they you know they cut it, so that was um a classic, a classic moment. <laughs>
0: P. Diddy, featuring Keisha Cole,
1: last night. Wow. Another real-life experience, you know, was dating a young lady up in Harlem. We had just re- reacquainted after years of not, of not, you know, being seen each other for a long time, and um, we finally reacquainted. And um, when we reacquainted, you know, everything was going good. until so finally, you know, there was some situations with some infidelity on my end. And she found out about it, and when I tried to call her, she wouldn't answer the phone no more. And I kept calling and calling, leaving messages and messages. I called about maybe a minimum 100 times, and she didn't pick up. And um, I don't know, she could have been asleep. She, she not, or she could have just been ignoring my calls, but I was calling frantically. And, um, you know, when I finally did make it to the studio, Diddy had that, had that track up. And he said, Jack, I want you to write to this for my album. And it came out right away. You know what I'm saying that song came out right away and and, and and um just the energy of it and uh yeah man, it became a, you know one of my classic songs since you know I had a lot of hit songs uh but that was a that was a real big song for me
0: and last but not least, one of your most recent compositions, the bonfire you say
1: yes, uh once again you know that was made with a team, it was myself. Sam Bruno, uh, Queen Fina, a.k.a. Raylene, uh, Raylene Araguan, and my man uh, Tommy Bishop. And, yeah, we, you know, I, just, I had just moved to L.A., been in L.A. for maybe three or four years, and I hadn't really been making any music, you know, for commercial use. I've been, I, w- I was doing a lot of independent projects and doing a whole bunch of other business stuff, but that was the first song when we all collectively came together, and, and, it, and, and it went number one. So that was a really exciting, exciting group effort, getting that song placed. Queen Fina got the song placed. And it took a while, but it got to number one. And, that, and actually, I may have had number twos. I may have had uh, top tens. But that was, if not my first, that was, like the, you know, that was definitely one of my most recent number ones.
0: One of my favorite projects you worked on was New Edition's 2004 album One Love. You played a part in the song "Sexy Lady," "Feeling It," and "Wildest Dreams." Of the three, which one was your favorite?
1: Um, "Sexy Lady," "Wildest Dreams," and I think another one was called. I think it was called "Last Time." One more was called "Last Time," but I want to say. Uh, let me see. Uh, I would say sexy lady. I would say last time, but I think just per, I think it was nostalgic. Period. Like you know, no one has never asked me that. You the first person ever asked me that. But I really want to express that. You know, here I am in public school, in middle school, and all the girls were screaming over. It was two groups: Manudo and New Edition. You know, like the Manudo was like the Latin version of New Edition. And uh, yeah. just just to see Bobby Ronnie. Ricky and Mike, I love the girls who cares who you like. And to be writing for them and have them, you know, have Ralph in the booth saying, Ralph, sing this. And then saying, okay, um, okay Johnny, you next. Go in next, Johnny. Like to me, that was like a surreal, the most nostalgic experience, one of the most of my career. And just to be seeing some, you know, a group that was, that was our idols growing up and for me to be, you know, working on an album, them, you know, when they signed the bad boy, so that was a, you know, aside from the songs, just working with them and being around them. Period. What, well, you know, wasn't was an amazing experience. Yeah, man, he
0: wrote a monster and um, <coughs> excuse me, sexy lady and Rick. Ricky killed that shit. Like, locally, yeah. Ricky don't get Ricky don't get his just do from a from a vocal standpoint. And that would have been a huge um, a huge country song if they would have never. Push it as a single. So just me being exactly. a fan. I know, I know they recorded about forty songs for the One Love Project. Did anything that you did for them not make the project?
1: Yeah, there was one song that didn't make the project. Um, it was it, it was it was it was one with Johnny Gill singing the lead, and um, I forgot the name of it. It was so, such a beautiful song. It just was talking about just you and your girl being someplace in Morocco and just. You know, watching the sunset as your love sets. And it just was, a, it was, it was, a, it, you know, my mom, um, rest in peace, she passed away. And one of the only concerts that she ever we ever been to together was a new edition, I'll Be Sure. And I forgot who else was on the bill. New edition, I'll Be Sure. I don't want I don't, to, I don't think it was a Guy. I think it was New Edition, I'll Be Sure, I'll Johnny Gill. Sure. Uh, huh? Huh? was it Bobby Brown the heartbreak tour? Yeah, and Bobby Brown. Bobby Brown was yeah. on it too. So,
0: at the heartbreak tour. You know,
1: she, she loved Johnny Gill, man, and so I really wanted to have a song with him on that project and um that song didn't make the cut, but it was a beautiful song. I forgot the title of it, but it was a beautiful record. It's okay? It could be called It's okay, but did you did you see that on the album somewhere on a, on a, on the internet?
0: Nah, just um, you know this this is back in the file sharing days, so like stuff was leaking left and right, and it's okay. It was one of the songs that leaked for like a minute and thirty seconds, and I think Johnny was lead on that when Ralph was doing the chorus and the bridge.
1: Yeah, man, I wish I had that record, man. It's somewhere yeah. on YouTube, like
0: like a minute and thirty seconds, you know, was on. It's on YouTube, and shout-out to Puff, man, Diddy, man. Bruh, release those unreleased tracks, man, because you make a killing from the streaming if you would drop those um, other songs from the One Love sessions because I know the fans want to hear some of those unreleased gems from the One Love Project.
1: Yeah, All man. Right, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would love to hear that record. You're right. It was, it was Ralph Tresvant and Johnny Gill. You're right about that. But I could never, find, I don't know, I don't I don't even know what it, if you find it, man, send me a link, man.
0: What can you tell us about your 2006 book, The Art of Writing a Hit Song, The Urban Experience?
1: Um, I did that in collaboration with, um, uh, I forgot, what's the lady name, um, I forgot my co my co writer's name. Who did the director? Um com. Or well, she my co-writer, she had a, a site called SongU.com, an online site for songwriters to learn all the skills of songwriting. And um I I connected with her, did a few seminars with her, and I said, Hey man, you know, I would love to do a book, you know, which I provide my real life experiences combined with um technical aspects, you know, te- for the technical people. And um that's how the book came out. And, and actually I had a, I had a few hits back then. I got more now, but back then I, I think I had, I need a girl part one. I use that. I use a total song sitting home. I use Monifas, touch it. Um, and I would take the creative process of how I made those songs and create it like a step-by-step curriculum or, or, or a lesson. Each of those songs were a lesson in and how I, and how I make records, you know what I'm saying? And, um, it was a real uh, thin book. It got right to the point, and a lot of people, you know, I mean, I hear stories, people from Canada to people to, from Europe, people in prison, um, some of the kids and students that I taught over the years with my Finding Your Way program. That's, I started in uh, East New York, Brooklyn. I managed to go to Richmond, Virginia, Sweden, this program, and that, that was the book that we used, I used as a, uh, as a guide for the students.
0: Throughout your career, have you found it easier to work with hip-hop artists or R&B artists?
1: I would say I'm more fulfilled working with R&B artists, but it's easier working with hip-hop artists because you write a hook, sing it, and they lay their verses and you're done. (laughs) Is the Jack Knight Songwriters Academy still active? The Jack Knight Songwriting Academy is, is, is active not by name, but we changed the name. Right now the name of the site is called dot com. East New York, it stands for. Uh, that's the site now that I, that I have set up and is going to be growing. It's been set up for the past few months now. And, um, you know, people are going to be, you know, songwriters, producers, artists, you can have your own profile on there. But more importantly, I'm providing the same creative services that I provided to Sony Music, to Atlantic Records, to Bad Boy Records, to Universal Records, to Interscope Records, the same creative services I'm providing to record labels, I'm now providing to independent artists. So if you need, if you need album artwork, you need videos, you need mixing and mastering, you need me uh, to critique your songs, you need beats. I have over 3,000 beats in, in a library uh, for free use to all the to, to all subscription paying members. So essentially, um, you know, that's the new songwriting academy, you know, where I'm actually helping artists one-on-one and now uh, they pay a subscription fee and they're able to, you know, re- you know, release their music to all the major streaming platforms and we're able to guide them, you know, creatively. So
0: speaking on finding your way to the of songwriting, I understand at some point you are going to release a DVD
1: Showcasing your travels around the world—is that still in the works? Yes, yes, definitely still in the works. I actually, we um, we had some funding. We had some funding. We ran out of funding, and you know, I didn't. You know, at the at the I, at the time, I didn't understand a non-for-profit world. It's like the music business. Same thing. It's like you know, you know, they want to see that the new hot the new hot thing that people can give their money to. <laughs> so, you know, essentially, we made the DVD, but you know. We're gonna you know, eventually release it and do a nice release of it because that's gonna be that's a because a lot of those kids that were in that program are now business owners, are now nurses and doctors and lawyers and have their own and, and, and um, work in law enforcement. So a lot of people that were a part of these, those programs have actually uh, excelled. So we're gonna you know we're gonna show that we're gonna show them then and we're gonna show them now.
0: Has anyone ever turned down a song? and it later became a hit for someone else?
1: Yes, plenty of times, plenty of times. Um, people have turned down songs, and they became hits for other people. Let me see that any, uh, as a recent, um, also, but I want to say the reverse has happened sometimes. Sometimes you write a song for one person, and it's so hot that the producer takes it and gives it to a bigger artist. Or another artist. Yeah. So I don't want to give details, but a lot of people Not got their songs. A lot of people got their yeah. song snatched from them, uh, by different producers and executives I was working for, because it's like you know, hey, you might you might hear it for this one artist on a label, and then a person might be like, on, hey, you know, I can use this for me or use this for whatever case may be. you know, most most record label owners and producers are also artists in their own right. So sometimes it's something is too hot they're not going to give it up for someone on a label. They're going to keep it for themselves. So I think that has happened to me more than anything. And also what has happened to me, like in, in the terms of Jennifer Lopez, I did a song for her on her J to the Elo" album called, i um, yeah. walking on sunshine. That song I was, was remixed. Them. That song was remixed and then put on her, uh, her greatest hits album. It was the only song on the album that wasn't the greatest hit, but that was on her album. Then you got a song like Last Night that was on Diddy's album that sold four million. Then Keisha Cole, who was also featured on a song, took last night and put it on her Just Like You album, which sold two three million records. Then you had a situation with Biggie, I did a song on his uh Biggie Duet album called called um uh, I Want That Old Thing Back with Ralph Tresvant yeah, and man. now Ja Rule. Somebody, re- yep. somebody remixed. Then they, they then they took that song and then put that on Biggie's Greatest Hits album. It was the only song on Biggie's Greatest Hits album that wasn't the Greatest Hits. It was just on his Greatest Hits album. Then that same song got remixed and uh, um, by a guy, I forgot his name, and, and, and then that went gold. Um, a, a dance producer, Whitney Remus, I think. I think his name was Matoma. M A T O M A. And Matoma did. it. Yeah, on the weeds. That's right. And, and with gold. So I think that has happened to me more so than someone saying, "Hey, I I passed on the song, and someone else did it, and it blew up." But what, what has happened to me? My songs have had multiple lives, <laughs> as you can say. So you can't give us like one song somebody turned down
0: that somebody might have else. Uh... Because I know I, I interviewed, um, I interviewed, uh, having a brain fart, I interviewed uh, Los the maestro earlier in the week, and Los told me about um, the whole thing with Chris Brown and Ben and how it ended up in Jay Holiday's um He was like, man, you know, it, it happens. Like some songs just meant for um, other people. Cause, I mean, you know, you, you work with so many cats in the bad boy camp that, like, I'm sure there's been songs that might have been for, say, Carl Thomas that ended up with Mario Wines, or songs that might have been for Faith that ended up with Total instead.
1: Because you have a
0: very impressive uh, resume. I'm
1: thinking, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. Um, I think it's, you know what, I, I, I got to honestly say, if I if I think about something, I'll shoot you a text, once you know. But right now, I can honestly say, that has never happened to me. Any song I've written, people have taken it. And put it out. (laughs) They didn't let me. They didn't say nah. It never happened. Like I said, the only experience I've had is that my song being used by multiple people uh, for different for different projects. uh, That they was you know they they took the same song, but I've never yet had a song that was that we made for one person that they said they didn't like it and then they use it. The only person I can say the song came as close. I think what you know what what you say. I think you say. I think Phoenix. Who, took, who was taking the lead on getting the placements for that record, she um, sent it to a few people. But it's not like she sent it to Beyonce, and Beyonce said no, you know, and then, and then, and then, uh, and then uh, Bonfire used it. Nothing like that never happened. But I think a few people, she took it around to a few A&Rs and people, and they didn't really move on it quick enough. So I think that has happened where people didn't move on a record quick enough, and then we sold it to somebody else. But I've never yet to give a record to somebody, they pass on it and then it blows up for you know, not yet.
0: You had a chance for day twenty six when they were in their prime. Do you think they had the potential to be a huge army group had they stayed together?
1: Yes. Yes, a hundred percent. I think I think um they could have really did good. I think they would have really done well if they would have shot I think there's a song I did for them called, um, exclusive, no excuses. I did this song with B Cox and, um, it was a big song for them because that's a song all the members had to keep constantly singing when they did their battles. So it was a big TV, TV song for me. I, I got a big, uh, big award for, uh, uh, T V s music for that year through CSAC, um, for that song. And I think, to me, that was a nice crossover record for them. I think they should have shot a video to that. That would have crossed them over even more to the pop market because um, they was already pop. But um, with that said, a lot of my writers that I signed to Bad Boy wound up you know, writing for them on their, on their projects and stuff like that. And, and they did moderately well, but I think if they would have stayed together, they could have been that, you know, that new group that could have con- constantly uh, kept putting out hits because they all could sing. Each member could really sing good.
0: Can you give us a quick story on working with Rakim on the eighteenth letter and working with Gangstar?
1: Oh, wow. Those were two of the most legendary projects to be a part of. And it happened so so random. You know, with Rakim, I was I was about to do a deal with Universal. I hadn't officially signed a deal with them yet. And then, but the A&R, once again, Dino DeValle, he knew I was a writer. And um, he said, hey, I'm working on this album for Rakim, and we need some hooks. Could you come in and write something? I was like, whoa, Rakim? You did say Rakim? So I went in. I wrote two hooks. One was called Show Me Love. Another joint called Stay A While. Um, And um, eventually one of them made it, and Rakim came in at the end of the session and was vibing and I was just, was, I was just like, my, my jaw dropped. I was amazed at one of the greatest MCs to this day in time, and definitely the top MC back then, you know, did, just just acknowledged that something I did, he had liked, and, and he actually used it for his album. And um, with Gangstar, similar situation. Uh, actually, Total gave me the call, because I had wrote a hit for them called Sitting Home, and I think Total gave me the call maybe Total or somebody else, but they knew I had wrote for Total before. And they said, hey, look you know, Gangstar is doing this record and we need a hook. And, you know, I went to the studio. Total was there. DJ Premier was there. And I just wrote the hook. I didn't know, you know, I went back to Virginia. I'd have seen the video. I, I didn't know that was going to be a hit record. You know, I didn't know that was going to be their first single either. And I didn't know that was going to be a classic album um, for them um, 10 years, um, 10 decades of Gangstar. So, Wow, just you know, you you brought me back, man, just being part of so many classic projects. Um, just just actually also picking the projects that I want to be on, the same way an actor picks what movies he want to be you know, they want to be in. And all the projects that I picked, man, I'm glad to say were classics. Total's album, Kima Keisha and Pam, classic, Rakim, seventh letter, classic, uh, Gangstar classic album, Keisha Cole, classic album, J Lo Soul Tim classic album. You know, I had an opportunity to be part of a lot of classic projects.
0: I'm a big fan of biotics. Who's one's artist story you would love to see told, in either a miniseries format or on the big screen?
1: Which artist I would love to see? I would love to see you said an artist. This artist period artist I work with. No,
0: it's just an artist period. You may have worked with them or not.
1: Um, I would say for me, I I would want to see a Juice Crew movie about the Juice Crew. Big Daddy Kane, you know, Biz Markie, um, uh, Craig Mack, uh, Master Ace, Tragedy, Roxanne. You know, I would love to see a movie about the Juice Crew. That was one of the first original hip-hop crews. Um, definitely love to see a biopic about them. I would love to see a biopic about Bad Boy, about Puff, with me in it. Of course, you know sometimes certain people don't make it, but I would like to see a biopic about that, you know, with me in it and showing me, you know, you know the, the different things that I, that went down during that time. And um, actually, I'm work I'm working on a story that speaks about Bad Boy, but it's more so about my life story and coming from East New York and making it and all the things I went through in the industry. But um, definitely, I would have to say uh, Juice Crew. I love you know, and I would I'll just say Diddy and I'll just say myself.
0: <laughs> so being at Universal and being a bad boy, do you ever get a chance to run into Andre Harrell? And do you have any memories of Mr. Harrell?
1: Um, honestly, my first hit record that I had was Monifas Touch It. And that was on Uptown Records. So that so Uptown was close to, you know, it was, you know, wasn't like the Uptown how it used to be, but it was still Uptown, the brand, and that was where one of my first hit records was at. You know what I mean? And um, every time I see Andre Harrell was a class act, always giving positive information and positive feedback, and, um, you know, pretty much that was um, always seen him smiling, and he was loved by a lot of people. You know what I mean? And, and, you know, and he gave us, gave us all some of our first shots.
0: If you could battle any producer or songwriter in a versus battle, who would you choose?
1: I think... I'm a little adventurous. You know, I would love to me. I would love to battle Pharrell. I'm battle about Pharrell. I would say Pharrell, B. Cox, Sean Garrett, Rico Love. Who else? Um... Yeah, I, I, you know, I would definitely. Yeah, that, that's my list right there. I would love to. You know, I, I think I got about 20 hits that I can go. I can go back to back and, and, and celebrate with them. Because really, is a battle, but it's also a celebration of music. And I think all the records I've written can actually, you know, match up with some. Of, you know, some of the greatest records from Carl Thomas to Monifa to Total to Diddy Records to Keisha Cole to everything. I think I think I got I got some some records in the Arsenal to match up with.
0: Before we close out, is there anything you'd like to add? And where can fans find you on social media?
1: Yes, I would love, love, love everybody that's a do-it-yourself artist. Everybody that's a songwriter. Everybody that's a singer. And you've been hesitant on putting your own music out. Not everybody else's music, your own music. If you've been hesitant, you've been lazy, you've been shy, you've been procrastinating, procrastinating please visit my website, madeineny.com is a creative service website for the do-it-yourself artists. I provide all everything you need from music, beats you can use, graphics for your for your single releases, um, visualizers for your videos, mixing and mastering for reduced costs. Everything that you can you have to go around to, you know, different places on the web. I have all in one-stop shop on that website. So come visit me. If you need one-on-one consultation, whatever Join up, man. Join up. I'm here.
0: All right, folks. I want to thank Mr. Jack Knight for stopping by, for Reviews and Duns to share his testimony and share his wisdom with us. And all the aspiring songwriters, artists, check out this guy's site because he has some knowledge for you. And I'm going to leave you guys with a quote. Know the business. Learn the business. Own something. Isaac Hayes. Until the next time, stay inspired, stay positive, and be blessed. Done out. Peace. Uh, this is Brock Obama. Uh, tune in next week for another episode of Reviews and Done, uh, with your host, formerly known as uh, DJ Aftermath, uh, but still the Slow Jam King.
1: DMV's own Derek Duck.